The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Adam Crafton alongside us. And coming up, we'll discuss Leicester after a performance yesterday described by Brendan Rodgers as embarrassing. Uh, we'll cross to Cameroon for reflections on Senegal finally becoming Africa Cup of Nations champions. And Daniel Taylor joins us to tell us about his special report on the Athletic on the difficult issue of rehabilitation in football. Let's start with the Africa Cup of Nations. Then Senegal are the champions. They beat Egypt on penalties. Uh, Mahea Mazari has been in Cameroon covering the AFCON for the Athletic and joins us. Now, before we get on to Senegal and the dramatic finish, what are your overall reflections on the tournament? Initially, it was a bit difficult with FIFA allowing uh, some European clubs to hold on to their players until just three or four days before kickoff. COVID has been uh, a real menace as well, uh, ruling several players out and the, the health protocols have been really shifty. It hasn't been clear what's been going on at times. Of course, we can't forget about the Olympic disaster where um, uh, a crush before the Cameroon-Comoros match in the round of 16 uh, tragically took the lives of eight Cameroonians. So all of those things, I think, put a damper on this tournament. But overall, I think all things considered, it was still a decent tournament. I think the football really picked up after the first uh, round of the group stages. And is that how it has been viewed in Cameroon itself as, as, a, as you know... You've mentioned several mitigating circumstances, some of them absolutely tragic. But in the main, how did Cameroon feel about the tournament they've hosted? So it depends who you speak to. I've spoken to some sure. Cameroonians that said, with all of the budget that's been given to this tournament, we should have built hospitals, roads, schools. Um, I've spoken to others that said it's been 50 years since we had last hosted a major tournament. Cameroon is a major footballing nation. We needed to do this. Overall, I, I would say that the majority of Cameroonians feel like yeah, okay, they were happy that they did it. They knew it was going to be difficult, but overall they were happy they hosted this tournament. To go back to, obviously, the, the tragedy that happened um, last week, after, after that, has there been any sort of announcement yet about um, whether there'll be you know, a level of scrutiny, report, accountability, inquiry into what's happened? And also, was there any discussion in Cameroon about does the, does the tournament even continue after that event? So I, I work with a lot of European media here, and I, I remember being on a phone with a, a producer of a major television channel in the UK telling me, you know, if this happened in the UK, this tournament would have been cancelled like this. And in Africa, we played football the next day. And I've really been thinking about this for, for a lot. And speaking to Cameroonians, some have told me we don't see life and death the same way as a lot of European nations do. We cannot hold our governments to account in the same way that many European nations can. Um, but to answer your question, CAF immediately demanded uh, an inquiry from the organizing committee. CAF kind of deflected the blame, said, look, we're not in charge of security. It's the local organizing committee that's uh, that's in charge of security. But we're partners, so we kind of share in the blame. They, they kind of sat on both sides of the fence. And that inquiry came. I went to that press conference. It wasn't really a press conference. It was a speech. The sports minister didn't take a single question. Paradoxically, also put in place 14 new measures. And we saw that the security in the ladder matches was much, much better. The passage into the stadium was much more fluid. Let's move. There's no easy way to actually move on from discussing that than discussing the football. But but that's what we will do. And, and, and the final itself, which was dramatic, in its finale and chaotic in its trophy pre- <laughs> its trophy presentation. It wasn't a great game of football in terms of 
passing, you know, shooting, uh, patterns of play, attacking football. But when you watch football, and especially in major international football tournaments, you have to take into account the context, you know, of what all these players are, are playing with the burdens on their shoulders. You know, Sadio Mane, think about this, you know, Senegal, first of all, have never won an African Cup of Nations. Their only major trophy is the 1963 Friendship Games, which is, I don't even know what kind of tournament that is. Uh, and that's simply unacceptable for Senegalese football fans. So you have to think about that, you know, and they were robbed. In 1965, they were eliminated because of goal average rule, which was weird. In 92, they hosted the tournament for the first time. Lots of excitement. Bounced in the quarterfinals to Cameroon. 2002, lost in the final to Cameroon. 2017, Sadio Mane misses a very important penalty against Cameroon. 2019, they lose in the final to Algeria. So really, you have to think that they're playing with the weight and the burden of all of this behind them. Sadio Mane, when he missed that penalty in the 2017 uh, quarterfinal against Cameroon, his house was vandalized. His uncle's car was um, vandalized as well. Uh, he didn't take penalties for Senegal for another for about a year and a half. He was that traumatized. And so for, for me to see him step up in the third minute against an Egyptian goalkeeper who has been incredible at saving penalties throughout the tournament, for him to miss that, that penalty, you know he's thinking about all of these things again. And then for him to step up in that final penalty and take it as confidently as he did, for me, that meant so much to see him have that moment. And it's deserved because for me, he's probably one of the best personalities uh, on our continent. I wonder whether, or apart from the fact it's their first one and the history that you've mentioned, I wonder whether um, one of the most important things about Senegal winning was that they had a Senegalese manager. It's been a, a main topic of discussion in this tournament because we've had, I think, in this tournament, 15 or 16 local coaches of the 24, which is a much, much, much higher clip than we've had in tournaments before, albeit many of them were interim managers. But there's been a new blueprint that's sort of been put in place in Africa where instead of sometimes getting uh, a European coach who sometimes, I'm not saying this is the case for all European managers because it isn't. There are many who actually invest a lot of time and have a lot of inspiration and, and love for African football. But there are some as well, admittedly, who are on a coaching carousel. Um, for some reason, they, they keep getting jobs. They get their 20,000 euros per month. They don't really care if they get fired. They have no real investment. But there's a new blueprint now. And it started with actually Ali Usise, Senegal's coach, um, where you bring in a former player who has their coaching badges, their UEFA Pro license, who's looking for you know a, a real good first job. And coaching your national team is a good job, especially when it's a, a national team at Senegal's uh, level. And uh, so I think many African nations are starting to take that blueprint. Senegal have it with Aliou Sisse, uh, Algeria have it with uh, Jamal Boumadi. And now I'm even hearing that Ghana are starting to look at that model as well. Wouldn't be surprising to see somebody like Michael Essien, for example, who's uh, coaching in Nordschland, Denmark, uh, maybe taking that job. And I suppose the final question then, this tournament then leads on to um, the continent's number of places at a World Cup, doesn't it, Maher? That's what it does. The record for African teams at a World Cup hasn't been seriously impressive very recently. But the one thing I would say, the one positive about expanding this World Cup is that I really do think Africa deserves more than five teams. Extending it to nine and a half for me is just about right. Because if you look at the top teams in Africa, there really isn't a huge gap between most of them, you know, Nigeria, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Algeria, Egypt, Tunisia, whatever. There really isn't a huge gap. After the ninth, 10th team, you start getting a, a sizable gap where I think they wouldn't be competitive on the world stage. So that's going to be something that's, that's I think, really good for African football is the fact that we can get nine and a half teams uh, as of 2026. But uh, 
the limited number of places makes for great drama. So if you're really into African football, you can look forward to um, the March qualifiers where there's going to be a playoff. Ten teams uh, play home and away fixtures. Uh, Egypt plays Senegal again. So that's going to be a really interesting doubleheader and it makes for really good drama. So something to keep an eye on. Exciting weekend of shocks in the FA Cup then, including the holders being knocked out by Nottingham Forest. Rob Tanner covers Leicester for The Athletic and joins us now. And as you tweeted, Rob, you actually started writing your match piece before the game because a rebuild was needed no matter what, in your eyes. Uh, absolutely. No. I think I mentioned it in a piece a couple of weeks before that uh, it was time really for uh, the reset button to be pressed this summer. Um, there's about 11 players that are entering well, they're in the last 18 months of their contracts now. This coming summer? This coming summer, they, they, will, they will be looking to overhaul that squad because there's a natural cycle to a squad. Um, we've got a number of the legends coming to um, to the end of their their time at the club. Michael Brighton, Vardy and Schmeichel are all 18 months away from the end of their contracts. Vardy, I, I can see getting another year because the, the form he was in until he got injured. But um, there was a number of players that uh, have come in recently and that it's just not worked for them and that squad hasn't been able to cope with the number of injuries there there hasn't been enough quality in depth so we thought that if the head of the forest game there were going to be a number of changes and some of those lads that are going to be fighting for their places for their future at Leicester City would be on show as it turned out Brendan went with the strongest team he possibly could left those guys on the bench still didn't call upon them when it was all going belly up on the pitch. So I think the, the rebuild job is even bigger than he first imagined. It's interesting you talk about the the life cycle of a squad and some of the 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 veterans, in inverted commas, who might be, you know, coming towards the end there. Because we had a discussion at the game yesterday in that the veterans were who they missed yesterday. Because oh, yeah. when Forrest were going hell for leather at them, nobody calmed it down nobody took the sting out of it and and in fact it got it got worse didn't it whereas before Forrest scored Leicester were actually on top but Forrest just have a couple of experienced players that's you know Steve Cook's a prime example who just I think managed to ride out the little bit of the Leicester storm and Leicester were missing that and that's why I think if uh, Brendan was thinking of moving the likes of Michael Brighton and that on uh, he might have a rethink on that front because it, there's a lack of experience. There's a lack of game knowledge. We've seen it in previous games. And Tottenham, you know, the, the way they threw that game away, you know, there's a lack of game management, lack of experience. Yuri Tillemans was the most experienced uh, player on the pitch for them. He got the captain's armband. He's, he's still very, very young, but he's played 400 senior games. So you're looking for him to provide that leadership. But if he looked across the pitch as that game was running away from him very, very quickly, that there was no leadership. There was nobody pulling him together, nobody calming the situation down. Uh, and that's something they have to address. I know their model is to go and buy young and develop, but I think they need a bit of uh, quality and a bit of experience in there as well now. Obviously, you mentioned the rebuild that they're going to be looking to do. Do you expect that to involve Brendan Rodgers? I do at the moment. I think he's got enough credit in the bank, but you could see from the reaction of supporters on our site, on on various other social media platforms, that you know they're, they're starting to run out a bit of patience this season. I mean, he's achieved some magnificent things uh, over the last couple of years, who can ever forget, you know, the FA Cup win? I mean, that's the first time in the club's history they lifted the FA Cup. And to be in the top four for all that time over the two seasons, I know they fell away at the end, but that's a fantastic achievement. You look at Leicester City and their budget, their revenue, and where they are as a club right now, that's a great achievement still. So he's got credit in the bank for now, but he can't have performances like that again 
this season because the fans will turn because there was a lack of fight. That's what you can't forgive. A lack of fight, a lack of heart. Forests were all over them. I hate telling fans to be sort of grateful for, for what they've had and where they've been over you know a period of time. But part of me does think with Leicester, can you? All, I, I can almost forgive Brendan Rodgers for one bad season. You know when you look into the injuries and basically the fact they've had to over overperform from a coaching perspective. I would say overplay from actually the, when you look at the talent and of the squad. I would say over the last couple of years relative to the other big six, is there just a natural ceiling? for a club like Leicester when it comes to... There's only so long you can recruit better than Arsenal, Manchester United, Tottenham and overcoach, I suppose, as well, as well in, in that period. Unless you just have this endless pot of money like a sort of a Man City or a PSG, there seems to just be this this wall you eventually hit. We probably saw it with Tottenham and Pochettino to an extent as well. Do you think Leicester fans are ready to just sort of accept... This is just one bad season. We've had injuries. We've not quite got it right. We go again next season. I think it all depends on which fans you speak to. I mean, there's some that demand more, expect more. Expectation levels are through the roof after winning the title in 2016. And then what they've achieved their last couple of years, there's people think that Leicester City should be now challenging in the top four on a regular basis. I actually think that, and there's a, I think there's a lot of fans in the same camp, that there is a glass ceiling for them at the moment until they can get more revenue to challenge these clubs because they can always, there's always potential for Tottenham and Arsenal to kick on. Uh, you feel sometimes with Leicester, they're at their maximum. Um, they're not going to go out and spend £50 million on a player that's going to come in. They're, you know, they're going to have to buy young and develop and then they tend to, except for this summer just gone, they tend to sell one prize asset uh, and then re use that that finance to to strengthen the squad again. And they've done really well at that over a number of years. This season, the injuries have been crippling them, absolutely crippling them. And it's been a bit of a downward spiral uh, this season. And I think there is enough credit in the bank for Brendan to have a go at a recruitment in the summer and try and rebuild and then judge him again on, on next season. But I think there's a bit of concerns about some of the recruitment over Brendan's period as well, though. Who's in charge of that at the moment? Bearing in mind Leicester's recruitment has always been praised so much and we knew who was in charge at that stage. Who, Where are we at? Where are we at with who's in charge of recruitment now? Well, there's a question mark over Lee Congerton, the head of recruitment, because uh, Atalanta have been sniffing around him for their general manager's role. Uh, it's gone seems to have gone quiet on that front at the moment. But uh, Lee was brought in by Brendan. Ultimately, Brendan has the final say. But they, the club does have a model that they've um, they've worked on for a number of years now, ever since the terrible summer after they won the uh, the title and they, they spent a load of money on players and none of them really worked out. The only one still at the club is Papi Mendy. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's a little bit of concern. I mean, the Ozzy Perez is one that I highlighted, spent £30 million on him. You'd expect a lot more back from him over the three years, 12 goals, nine assists. So you, you'd expect a lot more for that sort of outlay because Leicester City don't spend that money on a regular basis. And then you've got Vestergaard and Bertrand last summer who are totally against the model. And I know there's a, there was a couple of people within the recruitment department getting a bit frustrated at this because they've set up this model of recruitment and Brendan was going outside of that for those couple of signings. I think he's learned from that as well. Um, I mean, Vestergaard is now fifth or sixth choice for a centre-back. Even Danny Amata, who's not really a centre-back, is ahead of him. Wilfred Ndidi would play there ahead of him. Hamza Chowdhury's played there. So, you know, he, he's he got a long way back uh, to, to come at Leicester City. And, and Bertram was brought in. Initially, they just wanted him for a year. But obviously, he didn't want to sign a one-year contract. They just wanted him for cover whilst James Justin 
was coming back from his ACL. So, you know, there's, a, there's a, some question marks over the recruitment. Are they going to go back to the model that served them so well and try and go again? Or are they going to go down a different route and try and bring in some ready-made um, players and, and see where that takes them? Rob, am I right in thinking your Tielemans contract up at this summer? Uh, well, no, next summer, next summer. Yes, he's got 18 months. So this summer they're going to have to cash in, it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this has been going on for a year now. They've had a, a contract offer submitted to him for, for a year, best part of a year. Um, he hasn't turned it down. He hasn't said he's not signing it. He said he's keeping his options open. So, But I, I think there are concerns about around his performances this season, how distracted he might be by all of this. I mean, he was given the armband yesterday, as I said, you know, which is a huge honour. Even though he, he's not committed his, his future to the club, it's a huge honour to be given the armband. And he was anonymous in the game. He just wasn't there in terms of the fight, the, the battle in midfield. They got overrun. Over, but he's not the only one that might be distracted. And I think this is why Brendan was saying about them not being top players because you've got to go again and again and again. And also some of them being a little bit distracted by it all, thinking they might have achieved everything they could possibly achieve at Leicester City and uh, so there's a lack of hunger some of them uh, Wilfred Ndidi has been his performances have dropped off a cliff this season compared to it was one of the most dominant enforcers in midfield in the Premier League over the last two years uh, he's just look, not looked the same player um, this season so you wonder whether his head's been turned so there's a number of players that just got to reset themselves as well I mean Brendan was very very strong uh, with his words after the after the game of Saturday. so I'm really unlike him Normally, he's very positive. He's always trying to encourage and support his players, put a big arm around him. But um, you threw him under a bus a little bit after the game there. But I just imagine their performance on the pitch threw him under the bus. So it was a bit of tit for tat. Recruitment is um, it's going to be really interesting this summer, isn't it, actually? For, for a lot of clubs that I would say are Leicester's direct competitors for players. Now, that could be a West Ham side who... I uh, might get the final Champions League place. You, you, you never know, and might be willing to spend a bit of money. It's certainly Aston Villa and Everton who might have the attractive carrot of playing for Gerrard or or playing for Lampard. That level, and I suppose what I'm saying is those clubs just outside the so-called top six. There's going to be a hell of a battle to persuade people to come to your club. And you forgot Newcastle. Oh yeah, I did. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hellfire. That is, that is a big one to forget. Yeah. And that's a big carrot potentially waiting for players. That's why I sometimes look at, you know, if I was a player at Leicester, if I am a Yuri Tielemann and I've won the FA Cup and we've had two years of playing, as Rob says, what has always felt like the absolute maximum potential of that set of players and you've still not managed to do it is there a sense when you sort of start a season a bit slowly that you can kind of understand why it just sort of tails off and disintegrates a little bit because it becomes a little bit like what are we and what how much more can we achieve and obviously supporters will always say well you should still be giving you know 110 percent. you should still be giving everything but I think when you've had those sort of collective experiences of, of being nearly men at your perceived maximum level I think that's really hard to just keep going again you know without sort of real backing beyond that and always feeling like you're losing players along along the way what does it mean for Brendan Rodgers you know when we talk about him as a coach you know I think a lot of people for the last couple of years have thought you know when Pep Guardiola leaves Manchester City big contender to go in there a few people spoke about him about Manchester United as well Arsenal previously 
at the moment, it's hard to see people touching it. Rob, obviously, you spend a lot of time around Brendan. Do you get the sense that he's maybe accepting he's going to have to really dig in and rebuild almost to rebuild himself a little bit as well as the club? Well, yeah, if you look at his career as well, I mean, three years seems to be his limit everywhere he's been uh, for one reason or another. Um, so this is really a crucial time for him. This is the biggest test of his career, I think, right now. I mean, if he's going to get uh, a season to rebuild and, and can he kick Leicester City on again? I mean, the, prop, the complications for him are there won't be the finances there that a Villa and Everton and a Newcastle can spend because they've spent £100 million on the uh, training ground. They've now got massive plans for the redevelopment of King Power Stadium and the surrounds for that. That's going to be in excess of 100 million again and and that's all from the same pot of money i mean you factor in as well king power are a tourism industry i'm mean, duty-free hotels you know it's all based around tourism when no other industry in the world has been hit harder by the pandemic than that so you know your backup from thailand is is no longer there to such level I mean, I'm not saying there isn't a commitment. I mean, we've seen that with the commitment, the money they're spending on the infrastructure of the club. They're trying to build and grow the club. And I think inevitably there will be a difficulty uh, period in on the pitch as well because you can't see that same investment in. So they're going to have to sell to, to bring in fresh blood and bring in hungry young players again. And that's why I see a Tielemans moving and it might not be the only one that they sell this summer. But normally it's just the one. Last season was the only one. That was the biggest net spend in their history, 55 million they spent. Last summer, that was um, that was the the, the highest uh, level of outlay. But uh, I think this summer is going to be really interesting in terms of they'll, they'll be coming and going. There'll be some money that'll be regenerated. Well, last week Scottish Championship side Wraith Rovers confirmed they won't select striker David Goodwillie. The club had come under severe criticism for their decision to sign Goodwillie, who was ruled by a judge in 2017 to have raped a woman. The Athletics' Daniel Taylor travelled up to Wraith and has written a special report on the story on The Athletic. Daniel is with us now. What kind of place and club did you find when you went to the town? Divided. To be honest, um, I was actually quite surprised having followed it on social media last week. I I went up there on Friday and I was kind of... um, I was quite surprised by the, the there was actually a, a degree of I wouldn't use the word sympathy, but there was a it was more divided than I thought. There was a lot of people who were angry and a lot of people who felt that the club had handled it terribly, which they clearly have done. But there there was also a sort of a sense there that you know there is such a thing as rehabilitation. There are there were football fans whose priorities possibly jumbled. You know they, they they basically just you know the same as I mean this guy was playing for Clyde for nearly five years and there's been some very powerful voices you know in in the Fife area talking about it and um yeah so it's been a PR disaster basically your article whilst it focuses on Wraith it is about uh football uh, football and its opinion and attitude to to rehabilitation which um is not consistent but maybe that highlights how complex various issues are you I mean you talk about drunk drivers who've who've killed people and have then come back to, to play football as well. You also talk, don't you, to the chaplain. Is it the chaplain at Clyde? And he talks about rehabilitation in, in the piece. It's a, it's a complex issue. It is, and it polarises opinion. We can all think of the people who started their careers again, often with success and earning quite a lot of money, I would imagine. And, you know, for a number of years, you know, you can think of 
Lee Hughes, Luke McCormick, Marlon King came back, he'd been in prison. You get people who are brought back into football. There's no real consistency. There's, you know, it's 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 a very emotive, difficult subject and, and it divides people. Just in terms of football's relationship, men men's football's relationship with women, there is clearly a focus that is emerging now. You know, I was speaking to some agents last week who were saying, you know, they think this could be like football's Me Too moment where all of a sudden the sport wakes up and starts to say, you know, actually some things that the way we've spoken about women, treated women over an extended period of time is is wrong. And we need to, you know, to start being more proactive in dealing with that, whether it's education or allowing someone like David Goodwillie to, you know, yes, okay, be rehabilitated, but also be feted is probably maybe a step too far. Is Is there a sense of that wider discussion almost being encapsulated in, in one incident with, with David Goodwillie. In this sort of isolated case, I don't think that, you know, they were particularly thinking about, you know, the, the stuff that's going on in England, perhaps. I think it was more um, just, you know, concentrating on their own town and, the, and their own image. And then obviously, but, you know, as soon as, you know, the first minister of Scotland gets involved and the, you know, God, people at Gordon Brown's level, it, you know, it's, it just escalated and escalated. In... What you have discovered in putting this piece together on on the wider subject of rehabilitation it is is a, is football's problem with rehabilitation that these men because they are men when we're talking when we're talking all the examples that you've given in men's football that these men are brought back to a club to do a job for the club i.e score goals to get them up, yeah, yeah. To, you know, you know, be the goalkeeper that, you know, yeah. organises the bat line and keeps them in a division, whatever. You know, they're not being brought back to work in the ticket office, as an example. So rehabilitation is on the one hand, but it can often be portrayed, I suppose, to us, the public, as sheer opportunism to get promotion, not be relegated, whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because if this was the best club secretary in Scotland, he would never work again in football as a club secretary. The You know, this talk of rehabilitation, yes, it's important, but I also think that essentially Ray Forovers weren't bringing him there to rehabilitate him. They were bringing him there because they can't score a goal. They, you know, their game on Saturday was nil-nil. They missed about a handful of chances. It's amazing how being able to put the ball in the back of the net can get you a lot of slack in football and a lot of, um, you know, keep coming back to Clyde. He was there for five years and, and the, you know, the, they, their fans ended up loving him. But I do think what's, what's really interesting is what you said about Val McDermott and her role as a sponsor. And it made me think how often would actually a, a woman's voice have been heard in these debates previously over the years, whether that's in the boardroom, coaching team, sports science team, uh, sponsors. And the, and the women's team, Adam. And here, the women's, and, and and the the women's, women's team. team. So the women's voice has been hu- hugely important yeah. to, think, the, to this football yeah. club. And I think, you know, obviously while it's in many ways like quite a depressing episode, actually there's a level of progress in that, that you know, the voice of, of women has been heard and, and has had an impact and will make people, I, th- I think, probably behave a little bit differently in future in terms of making these decisions and thinking, well, if we're going to take a decision like this or even think about it, then we better have a conversation 
with some people who actually understand the issue. Just to clarify, with have they now cancelled his move? Is that move being cancelled? What's his state? Is he a free agent? What, what happens next with the footballer? They are talking about severance. So basically, they're going to have to pay him up. So they've got a, um, a cup tie at Celtic next, I think it's this coming weekend, which obviously they're going to get the TV money and the gate receipts and everything. And I think apparently that, that, that was what gave them the financial clout to think, you know, we can afford this guy's contract. So, you know, he, he will be on, you know, pretty decent money there. But they're going to have to pay him up. You know, that is not easy for, you know, I mean, they got a crowd a crowd of 1,100 on Saturday. You know, they're, they're not a wealthy club by any means. That's going to be another week of publicity around them leading up to a big game against against Celtic. What was their, what was their approach slash welcome to a journalist like you coming up um, from England to write about how terrible they are? I must say, first of all, the people of Kirkcaldy are charming and my family are all from Fife and I love going up there. But, oh my, I mean, just so bizarre what happened at the ground. I mean, I just, I think any any club with any intelligence would have just used that moment. There were a lot of journalists there, obviously, and they would have just used that moment to basically, you know, they obviously, you know, we're not stupid. We know they can't go into the, in, the ins and outs of everything, but they could basically have just come out afterwards and said, look, you know, we've lost, they've lost like 30 um, staff and volunteers. You know, they've lost the women's team. They had a new, they had someone new doing the stadium announcer, you know, the announcer. They've lost the supporters liaison officer and various others. They don't, they didn't have a press officer anyway. So they've got no kind of PR expertise behind them. But any, any, any sensible club would have just have come out and said, look, this has been a terrible week. We, you know, we really want to rebuild bridges with the people. And, we, you know, we hope that people will come back and they will see, you know, that we are good people. And we do, you know, th- this was the Community Club of the Year voted two, uh, two months ago. So what actually, and then what actually happened was they sent a message up saying that nobody from the club would be talking whatsoever. So literally not, the manager was gagged. Nobody from the club was going to speak to anyone, was going to say anything. When the sort of journalists were sort of milling around at the end, because they were a bit kind of, you know, taken aback by that, that, um, that stance, uh, some guy appeared and basically started, you know, trying to throw us off the premises. And this guy turns out to be the vice chairman, one of the four people who'd made this decision, you know, just a very sort of unpleasant scene that he created. You also, Danny, have an exclusive running in The Athletic today about Chelsea agreeing to pay damages to four former players. Uh, those four former players had launched a civil case against the club after racist bullying allegations. I'm absolutely delighted for the players uh, I can't they've all got anonymity there's more than four there's actually others waiting in the wings who are also going to be paid up I believe what they had to endure as kids as young as 12 um, is genuinely horrific I should stick in a reference here that that basically some of the allegations are denied Gwyn Williams accepts that he would use this language on a daily basis he he submitted evidence didn't he Danny said it was not intended maliciously is that right? Yeah, Graham Ricks has denied most of the stuff about him, but you know the allegations are, you know, I mean things like throwing coffee on a black player. Um, you know, I mean I won't go through the, the 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 list of words that is listed in the in these high court documents, but I'm sure you can imagine some of them. And you know the, the, these players, some of them, you know, been left with, you know, one of them has been that I'm friends with, is been left with post traumatic 
stress disorder, you know, it's basically shattered their lives. You know, there's, there's one guy who lives in London, can't go anywhere near Stamford Bridge because he gets flashbacks. What happens for those former players now? Is this all sorted for them? Is obviously not sorted for them mentally and in their lives. They're still very much carrying the, the trauma of what happened. But is it all sorted for them on, on the legal side of things? Yeah, I mean, they're going to, the, the first wave of players have, have been are being paid or have been paid damages. You know, a lot of these players feel like it, it, it killed their careers, you know, so may, maybe, you know, maybe they could have been very rich people at, the, at this stage of their lives. In terms of the modern Chelsea, because obviously the people running Chelsea now weren't there at the time, these cases are normally handled by the insurers, lawyers, and Chelsea was so keen to get it sorted, to avoid a trial, that Chelsea actually went for a very long and difficult process to extract themselves from the lawyers to deal with it themselves. So Chelsea have sorted this out themselves. Chelsea have done that, and I do think that deserves a bit of credit as well, to be fair, because, you know, it's a, it's putting these lads for a trial would have been very hard for them. So, you know, it's a victory for the, for, the, for these guys, and I'm, I'm just pleased for them, really. Just one quick line to bring you before we go. Brighton's director of football, Dan Ashworth, has resigned from his role at the club. He's now expected to join Newcastle. He may have already joined Newcastle by the time you're listening to this. Uh, there'll be plenty more on that story across the Athletic. And if you subscribe now, you get a 33% discount uh, simply by heading to theathletic.com slash football pod. And I'll be back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast. The Athletic. <laughs>